The Recipes for Life podcast is a conversation about my favorite ingredients for a healthy human experience. We take an informed look at topics that include nutritional and emotional well-being, as well as expanded consciousness. If you would like to become a qualified health coach, then the Institute for Integrative Nutrition, or IIN for short, can help you achieve your goals. I completed their health coaching course many years ago, which has been one of the catalysts for my own journey into what I now love to do, which is to help people achieve greater health through the sharing of information through my books, seminars, podcasts, TV shows and films. I recommend IIN for anyone wishing to pursue a career in the health coaching and wellness space. IIN is a one-year course, so that if you're a full-time worker, busy parent, or wherever you are in your life, it is flexible enough so you'll be able to complete all the required curriculum. Please see the link included in the podcast show notes or my website to access the free sample class and first module of their program. This will give you a great taste of the format as well as the structure, and you can also utilize my special discount that I can offer you if you decide to sign up. Make sure you tell the admissions team that you're part of the Pete Evans Tuition Savings to claim your very substantial discount. Please visit integrativenutrition.com or email admissions at integrativenutrition.com. Karma Trudgeon is a doctor and also the co-founder, along with her husband Tim, of Hope for Health and Together Retreats up in Arnhem Land. If you would like to donate to Hope for Health, visit their website at hopeforhealth.com.au. That's H-O-P-E-F-O-R-H-E-A-L-T-H dot com dot A-U. Karma, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. How are you? I'm really great. It's wonderful to be here. So, for our listeners that do not know who you are and what you do, can we do a, a brief overview about the amazing work that you've been doing in the past and what you're, pl- what you're doing currently and uh, your plans for the future? Beautiful. So I run a program called Hope for Health and we work with Yungo people who are the Indigenous people from Northeast Arnhem Land. So Yungo are dealing with a really catastrophic epidemic of chronic disease and we run retreats which provide experiential education about nutrition and we use the framework of the Yungo traditional diet. So we're, yeah, we're partnering with communities to try and turn around this horrible tragedy that they're dealing with and we really passionately believe that Yungo people matter and that um, it matters that we um, give them the information they need to turn this crisis around and contribute to our nation. So to this date, we've been running retreats just for Yungo people and we're really thrilled this year to be launching a new model of running retreats, which for the first time is going to be including dominant culture people. And we're really excited about providing an opportunity not just to be investing in people's health, which we're so passionate about, but also providing an opportunity for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to be coming together because we really believe there's just enormous power in that, that we need each other. And um, yeah, we're really excited about providing an opportunity for real positive shared experience across the cultures. So that's going to be launching in June of this year. Well, let's take a little step back and and talk to me about Mm. your qualifications and your history in, in the health space and how you and your partner came to uh, create Hope for Health? Sure. I guess I've always been pretty interested in health. I've always loved food. Um, so I've pretty much spent the last 20 years kind of journeying personally through a process of discovering what my body needs. And yeah, then I've had the joy of being able to share that with, with other people. So I initially studied as a medical doctor. Uh, So I did my six years of study and two hospital years and then I found myself in general practice. And I really um, at that point kind of felt like I I hadn't actually learnt any tools to really be healing people. Um, And I decided to step outside of medicine at that point and my husband and I moved to Arnhem Land to do community development work. 
in the process of moving to the island uh, to start work, I was actually pregnant and we ended up losing our, our little boy from a preterm labour. And what followed was four very long, hard years of struggling to get through a pregnancy. But I thoroughly believe that it's those things in life that we're given to overcome that, that give us our, you know, the gold that we have to share in the world. So we started a, a journey of trying to find what on earth we could do to, to support my body to be able to get through a pregnancy. And uh, we were introduced to the work of Western A. Price, and that was a, a huge turning point in our life. So it was pretty incredible to be kind of exploring his work in the context of Arnhem Land where we were living. And, you know, we were in the midst of a traditional culture. So we were kind of seeing this story that we were reading about from all over different places in the world was happening before our eyes that there'd been this, this beautiful traditional culture that had been in thriving health and modern displacing foods had come along and, and were, you know, bringing this devastating tidal wave of chronic disease with them. And when we were exploring those principles that were within his work from all over the world and particularly some of the ones that were really countercultural, like the fact that it was telling us to embrace eating fat and this was something so new and foreign to us. You know, I had really been in that mainstream low-fat paradigm for so long and it had you know, supported me to maintain a healthy weight, but it had done so in a way that had kind of made me kind of go to war with my body. Like I was not giving my body what it needed and I therefore had to kind of constantly be fighting cravings and blood sugar crashes. And yeah, we're suddenly being told that this thing that had been enemy number one should be embraced and, and we could kind of test that in the context we were in because we could see in, in the Jungle traditional culture, the way they treated and valued fat, you know, it's called do you, it's holy, it's the, the part of the animal that's prized. And so it was, yeah, a beautiful journey to be discovering that in our personal life and being able to test it in that, in that context. And we did go on to make all those massive changes in the way we ate and we were able to have our beautiful little boy, Eli, and uh, in 2012. So nutrition was something that was really, really important to us personally. We then had, a, I guess, an unexpected turn of events in the community development work that we were doing. We had made ourselves available on the ground in Arnhem Land to try and support the, the work that people were trying to do for themselves. So we tried not to put much of a, a box around that. It was really about being available to break down the barriers that people were experiencing, particularly barriers in terms of access to knowledge about how mainstream systems work. And we'd, you know, done a lot of amazing work in, in that time. I guess I've always been so passionate about health and preventative medicine that I really wanted to be able to impact that in that space. It was such a, um, just a horrible, pervasive thing in, in everything that we were trying to do and support people in. We constantly were being kind of sideswiped by death and sickness and it was just a really, it felt really hopeless and, and conversations with people felt like there was just no clarity and understanding on why people were dying and, and no direction or, or pathway forward. So we were certainly not planning to start a nutrition program and we're just very blessed by what kind of unfolded in our midst. So we we had a very dear Jungle friend, Spirit Chilawe, who got very sick. Uh, she had ischemic heart disease that was leaving her so breathless she was in a wheelchair unable to walk around and she was, yeah, very, very sick with infections and diabetes out of control and we decided to share some of our food with her, which was the food that had been so healing and nourishing to us personally. And we, we were just so blessed to see it having this amazing, profound effect on her that the difference between being able to just talk at people with information as opposed to when they're actually able to live it and experience it. And she experienced 
what it felt like to eat food that was nourishing and it really transformed her and that was just this amazing gift in it and she became really starving to understand more about food, more about how you cook, more about that whole story. And then it started this incredible chain reaction in the community because people saw this transformation in in her before their eyes, that she was up out of this wheelchair walking around and had energy and life and um, they wanted to understand why as well. So, it was, it was an amazing joy to see this pathway open up in a situation that had felt so hopeless. We saw that the two main elements that were really powerful in that were firstly that that element of experiential learning that, you know, people are just thoroughly malnourished and, you know, when you just have people talking at you with information, especially if that information isn't in your native language, it's it doesn't give you much to motivate change or enable change. Um, but that experiential learning, which is just, just a gift that's saying, hey, you don't know what you don't know. Let me show you how you can feel and the tremendous power in that um, once you embody something. And I guess the other element that was so powerful was being able to reconnect people to their traditional diet framework. And that's just so empowering on so many levels. Not only is it an amazing, awesome diet, but it it's a diet that a way of living and being that makes sense to people. People know that they were, you know, in vibrant health before. And so it, it makes sense to explore that story more. And it's just such a key part of people's identity so when we're able to validate that that's just yeah a great great joy so we we decided to explore how we could make that more that experience more available to the community so initially we crowdfunded and we we took a group of 12 women to an established health retreat down south and that was a an amazing experience to share. And that group then became our steering committee that guides the work back in the community. And we again crowdfunded and pioneered our own retreat in a, a homeland in Arnhem Land. And we had the joy of you visiting and that all being captured and, and shared in the documentary, The Magic Pill. So that was, yeah, that was just such a joy. And I guess such a privilege for the Jungle story to be able to be part of that bigger story that we're, we're telling about food and health. And I think the Jungle story is really grounding in that, that it's important that people can have this opportunity to look at this story of food from a different perspective and, and see that this way of eating is not some new invention that's been plucked out of nowhere and that the five food groups are not kind of laws of nature, that, that people have actually th thrived on this way of living for millennium. So, yeah, it was such a, a privilege to be able to be part of that story, Pete. And thank you so much for allowing us to uh, to be a part of that amazing retreat that you ran. And uh, uh, it definitely added a lot of weight to the story that I wanted to tell. In, in regards to the power of proper nutritional information, and I think one of my favorite parts of the film, actually, is when Tim, your husband, we asked him the question, mm. basically saying, well, what does that mean? What are you doing here? And, and he thought about it for for. A, five seconds at his own meat and vegetables, you know, and meat being s s any animal <laughs> from the land or the sea. And that to me is the premise of the whole film. It's, it's a film that encourages mm. people to look at where we've been, how we've thrived and survived mm. and really make it a very, very simple formula moving forward. And it's really interesting because I say to people, that's, that's pretty much the formula for nutritional mm. foundation is hunt together meat and vegetables, seafood and vegetables or whatever you can find. Yeah. And I do want to ask you a question and it's about the name because I love the name that you've created, Hope for Health. And what, what does Hope <laughs> for Health mean for you and for the community? Yeah, I think hope is is pretty central to to what we're doing. We we certainly revisit that a lot and and constantly feel validated in the name we chose. I think more than anything that's what this process creates. 
we're dealing with a population who are who are really disempowered and when you're disempowered you don't have hope you don't believe that you have the personal power to to change your situation and you know that's such a, a a sad way to live it's just so counter to me we were created to be beings of purpose you know that that we've got something we've got something amazing and unique to bring to the world and we're supposed to have vitality and energy to to do that good work and it's just so tragic when you see that stolen from people so when we're able to give people an experience that's just a gift that's saying you know you can feel different. Let me show you. And when you can see that it's choices that you can make and things that you actually control because you decide what you put in your mouth, that those things actually impact your reality, that it just shows you that you actually have personal power. And it's really interesting to see how that can then cross over into other aspects of your life when you're realizing that personal power when you're having your identity and your roots validated that you can carry that across into other areas and I guess for me it's always important to kind of explain that the retreat process is just this baby step that that begins it all I guess it's it's a cataclysmically big thing in one sense but it's such a small step at the same time that it's really just opening up a pathway to people that's showing them actually a pathway to health lies here and it's something that you can choose to be on. That decision actually isn't in somebody else's hands, it's in your hands. And that's what's been amazing is to ignite that hope and to be in a situation which had seemed so hopeless and just so we'd seemed so powerless to suddenly have a pathway forward that not only I was seeing, but community members were seeing with me. And it's very interesting how different it is that something can be very simple, but it doesn't mean that it's easy. And Jung were definitely living in a very complex socioeconomic situation and they're dealing with layers of trauma and grief and, you know, just tragedy that is beyond what most people are used to comprehending. And, and it's pretty unrelenting, the, the layers of that, um, you know, the constant death and sickness and funerals are really unrelenting. So it's important that we don't minimize the challenge of making change. You know, change is hard for humans, let alone when you're in complex circumstances. But when you can see that there is a pathway forward, it makes all the difference. When you have that hope and direction, you can get off track, but you know there's a track to get back onto. And to me, that's the most important thing is that we're giving people that opportunity, that choice. And I guess part of that is about having the opportunity to be able to take responsibility for what's happening in your life. And, and that can be hard and that can be complex. But, yeah, to me, that's the most important bit. I've seen some of the uh, books that are around for Indigenous about the food groups and that have been made similar to everything else with the, the five food groups and what we should be eating mm -hmm. to be healthy. Have you had much backlash from any sectors in what you're promoting there? Uh, basically being a, I guess, a uh, lower carbohydrate or uh, ancestral mm. uh, primal approach. And how do you deal with that if it does arise? Is it through the blood test that you can show and the evidence that you can show? So I guess we're still in the midst of a process with all of that. I think most people feel comfortable with the idea of recommending that Jungle people eat a Jungle traditional mm -hmm. diet. That doesn't, you know, that seems something that that people, I, I, I guess they realise how ludicrous it would sound to try and criticise that. I guess where it's a little bit more grey is people's interpretation of, of what that traditional diet was. And from my understanding and what I see going on around me, that most readily correlates with a low-carb, healthy-fat diet. And I guess it's important to us that we are not just pointing people back and saying you need to return to your traditional foods. A hundred percent, those are the most awesome foods. And whenever people can access them, we absolutely want to encourage that. But at the same time, people's lives are very different and 
people need to be able to make good choices when they're in the store just as readily as when they're in the bush. And so we really try to cross those principles over into modern mm. foods. And I guess we feel we're still very much in the process of being able to validate those results. What's so awesome about health is that there are so many things that are tangible that we can measure. I can't measure for you that sense of empowerment that I was just describing mm. for you, but I can measure what's going on with people's blood sugar and blood fats. So at least we've got something tangible that we can put on the table. Um, so we're really excited this year. We have two retreats happening and we're really excited to be bringing more elements of research into that so that we can have our results being formally validated because they are so tangible the improvements that happen and it's amazing how much impact can be made so quickly when you make these changes so we're really excited about I guess contributing to that larger body of evidence that is growing that is showing what a powerful way of eating this is. So let's take a step back to Western A. Price and when he visited mm -hmm. the Indigenous of Australia what were the findings there and what, what were the results what were the observations? Yeah, so I guess we have a few sources, not just Western A. Price's work that, that talk about early explorers, you know, coming to Arnhem Land and finding people in incredible, robust health. And I guess, you know, for my family, we've got the privilege of having amazing corporate history that my father-in-law came to be in Arnhem Land in the 70s. So, we, we have corporate history that goes back to a time when people were still vibrantly healthy. And I guess it's still within this generation that these changes have been made. So, it's something that we're literally seeing unfolding before our eyes. And I guess what really scares me is the point that we're at in that story. So, the people that we are working with now are generally people who, when they were born or when they were in the womb, they were, you know, the mother was eating traditional foods. And when they were growing up, they were still largely eating traditional foods foods that were just starting to be supplemented by those displacing modern foods. And that's obviously turned into a tidal wave now. But the epidemic of chronic disease that we are seeing now is just scratching the surface on what we are going to see in the future because we're now dealing with people who that's the diet that they've been on since they've been in the womb and that just sets them up to be metabolically in a completely different framework. And so it's really frightening to think about where this is heading because it's still it's still such recent history that this is all happening in. And so talk to me about the robust health then from Western A. Price and, and even just going back 40 years, 50 years. Explain what robust health means. Sure. So I, I, I guess the picture, and I mean, I've seen beautiful photos of this from my father-in-law's early mission days that you're seeing lean, fit, muscular, you know, people who were thoroughly active and, and just not dealing with these diseases that we're dealing with now. So, people were, would experience injuries and sometimes those injuries would get infected. Um, and that was, you know, an issue for people. But there was none of these chronic diseases going on. It's interesting when you talk to people to, you know, and get them to kind of trace that story back. They'll talk about what, it, you know, I think this is in the magic pill that we capture some of the, the workshop where we discuss this sort of thing that you look at what did people used to die of? Oh, maybe they were, you know, eaten by a crocodile. Maybe they died from an injury. Then there was a wave of infectious diseases that came through as missionaries and dominant culture people came in. And it's only been in recent history that these chronic diseases have come in and just taken off in epidemic proportions. You talk about a dominant culture and for anybody, I mean, it makes sense. But can you define that, what that means and what it means for the younger people especially? Sure. So, I guess, you know, in Arnhem Land, where we're in a situation where Yungwu people are largely living on areas of land that they have a degree of control of, but their cultural world is completely clashing and coming up against a dominant culture, which is the, the mainstream culture that kind of dominates all of the structures and all of the powers that influence their community. So, we definitely, when you're working with Yungwu people, you, you kind of experience this reality of cultural worlds that you have a Yungwu world that is, you know, it, it's essentially 
a framework that's completely different way of organizing and relating to the world. And that's what is the amazing joy and richness of, of working cross-culturally is that you, you have the opportunity to see that there is a different way of being in the world. There's a different way of describing the world. And for Jung, at the heart of everything is relationship. So relationship to each other, relationship to all created things. So they have frameworks, they have complete legal processes, governance processes, educational processes. It's a, a complete world that looks completely different to our own world. And we often don't recognize it or see it because it looks different. So Jung are in that world, they have their own language and worldview going on, but they are coming up against a, a culture that is more powerful and more resourced that, that tends to be the one that's pulling this, the strings on what's happening in their community. Mm. So how do you navigate that with the work that you do? Sure. So it's definitely our priority that we are not engaging with Jungo in any way that's saying we have solutions for you. So we definitely come into that space aware that Jungo need information so that they can understand this dominant culture that's making all these decisions on their behalf so that they can be empowered to, to come up with their own solutions. So for us, that's about consciously entering their cultural space and their world. So we've made a point to learn the language so that we can be delivering education in worldview and frameworks that make sense to people and make sure that we're doing the work to be bridging that cultural divide just as much as, as younger people are having to. And I guess, you know, we're, we're so fortunate that Jungo is so infinitely generous in that space that they are not kind of saying, you know, haven't you white fellas done enough damage? Do you think you could go away and leave us alone? They genuinely have an amazing grace that they can see that if we could just come together, we could actually all be greater. And they just want their own frameworks to be acknowledged and, you know, valued and used in their own communities as well. But they are very much wanting to learn and understand the dominant culture frameworks as well and to find ways that they can be integrated and applied. And I don't think we should be seeing it as an either or, but that there's an, you know, an amazing opportunity to be sharing knowledge across those cultures. And Jung will have definitely taught me that. And I guess it's something that we all navigate imperfectly you know I you know where, where I'm aware that I have privilege as a white person and my knowledge of the dominant culture and I've definitely have navigated that imperfectly but I want to um, make my knowledge and my experience a resource that could hopefully bless young more people to be empowered to be navigating those decisions for themselves. Mm, I'm loving the timeline so to speak as I think I mentioned it in the film but you know, there's so much wisdom that we can learn from our Indigenous cultures all around the world and that, mm. you know, all the scientists, all the doctors, all the dietitians out there, perhaps mm. just looking back in honour and respect of our evolutionary history would be able to bring so many answers that people are searching for the magic pill. Mm. And I can't help but think that our greatest teachers are the Indigenous and what they have to share for us. So I'm wondering how, how do you see that coming forth in a larger way? Mm. Is food and nutrition going to be one of these things that finally opens the Pandora's box to all of this wisdom? Mm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I mean, I, I just so thoroughly believe that, that these people matter. Um, and it's not in the sense that their culture just needs to kind of be preserved in a museum. It's like it's living knowledge. It's real. It's relevant. It's vital to, to what our world needs. And it's kind of funny to find yourself in between these two worlds and you can kind of look either way and it, it just – it's just so obvious that we have what the other need, you know, and we and we just need to be to be coming together. That you know, in the dominant culture, we we are living just so deprived of connection, 
to each other, to our environment. We, we have just lost our foundations in, in how to live and, and be. And Jung will just embody such a different way of being in the world. It is just such a gift to, to see it in action and, and to realize that it can be different to have reflected back at you some of the insanity of your, your own culture. And we really need each other because at the same time, Jung are here dying from lack of information. And yeah, they don't need solutions to be given to them. They need information. And and I guess what's sad is that for Jung they they don't see food as a natural suspect because that, you know, traditionally food was good. So if it if it was bad for you, it wasn't called food. So you could enjoy the abundance of what nature provided and it was seasonal, it was local, it was fresh, it was organic and, you know, you didn't have to be wary that there were people out there making things that were bad for you and bringing it to your community to sell it to you to make money. And that's a kind of horrific thing to have to be teaching people because it's the reality of the world they're in now. And I guess I I am really excited about the possibility of, Jung or not just discovering this information for themselves, but actually being agents of, of spreading that more widely because they hold that story, um, they embody it. And I think it, it does carry it in a way that is perhaps more accessible to a lot of people in the dominant culture who, who you know, can get distracted by politics and, and different issues, that that simple message can maybe get heard a little bit louder. And I guess I really want to validate that traditional knowledge on both sides. You know, Jung will need to have it validated. They have so many messages that are telling them that they are inferior to the dominant culture and, and that their traditional, you know, frameworks are, are irrelevant. So I just, it gives me so much joy to have a context that can show them that, no, that that's rubbish. You know, this is where all the power is. And it's not only what you need, it's what people in the dominant culture need as well. And I just love being able to flip that, that on its head. And yeah, and I guess that's what is particularly exciting to us about the together retreat model because it's kind of grown out of that that deep belief that we need to be coming together and we we need those opportunities to to genuinely share space and learn from each other and and in a context that isn't just uh, expecting Jung to give more to the dominant culture but one where they're you know equally receiving and and being blessed as well a relationship. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, which is always what Jung will take you back to. Based on trust, love, acceptance, mm. teaching and learning. And yeah. so looking into the future, you and Tim and the community have created a wonderful framework for healing. So there's no other way to put it, but it's <laughs> definitely the step, steps in place for empowerment, for that relationship to grow. And if you had your wish, how would you see Hope for Health being accepted into the wider community and mm. the forward plans for you and, and your, your hope for health, for, for the future? Yeah, that's that's a beautiful question. I, I guess we we have big, big hopes. <laughs> I think we've really just scraped the surface. You know, we've really, we've really just done some very baby steps on a, a big, big journey. And it's just so exciting to have such a tangible pathway forward. And I guess we are always trying to do far too much with far too little mm-hmm. in, in our resources, but we intend to, to keep doing that because we've got places to go. We definitely want to work towards um, setting up a permanent retreat site and offering regular, regular retreats so that we can continue continue to expand the reach and to make this at work available to other communities and other Indigenous groups from around the country. We've got so much interest and so much demand and there's just so much need and it just so matters that this happens. You know, we are losing people every day and they're, they're people who are losing just 
treasures of information, uh, you know, in this world that we will not be able to get back. You know, it's so important. So we want to be able to expand that reach across the country. And I guess we really want to keep providing more and more opportunities for dominant culture people to connect in different ways, whether it's coming to participate in retreats together, which I think is an ultimate experience, ways to volunteer, ways to be contributing, because I think so many people in our country are, are really sick of all the negative stories. We, we don't have a lot of positive stories going on in this space and there isn't a lot of hope being shared in the, in the mainstream media at all about this story. So I think it's, it's exciting to be able to offer people a very genuine you know, pathway to connect and learn and contribute to changing what this story is. And we really hope that we can be part of changing the story of Indigenous people in this country, that it can be about them reclaiming their health and validating their traditional frameworks and using that to contribute to the mainstream society and, and for that to be valued and received. That's certainly, yeah, what we're working towards. What have been the biggest lessons that you've learned on, on this journey for yourself and for your family? Goodness me, well, there's plenty of them. <laughs> I guess um, for me, the I think that the biggest treasure for me in this has been the ability to look back in hindsight and see that the struggle that I went through personally and all of the pain in that journey to see that being able to bear fruit for other people is is quite extraordinary because, you know, you don't know that at the time when you're in the middle of, of struggles what that could lead to. But I certainly look at struggles differently now. And I guess I, I didn't see a lot of hope in the situation that we were in, but we, um, but we kept turning up and we kept believing that God cared about what was going on for Yungle people and that if we kept turning up, he'd be able to do something. So it was beautiful to just see that, you know, hope can emerge when you don't expect it in ways you don't expect it. Yeah, that's certainly been really, really important to learn and I guess I just yeah I really believe that it is that stuff that you you overcome yourself and you you embody yourself that that is what you have to impart to the world and I guess that's the way we we carry on this work you know we don't want this to ever just to become some program but all of our amazing team you know of Yungle staff as well as dominant culture staff, we're, we're all on this journey together and we're all trying to be on that path of healing and wholeness ourselves. And that's the only thing that kind of enables us to be part of directing anybody else onto that pathway as well. And, you know, that's why it's really important for us as we train up a workforce back in the community in Arnhem Land that they are all people who are on this journey themselves who are then able to draw others into the journey and you know guide them along in that and we certainly have had to constantly reset our you know I guess our view of of success and just embrace, I guess, the messiness of the journey that it's, you know, there's no quick fixes to big hard things. But when you have hope and direction, you can still find a way forward a step at a time. So I guess we don't expect things to turn around overnight, but we see change happening every day and it's change that matters. So we, yeah, we celebrate the, the small stuff and we keep together looking at the hope and direction forward. And is that your definition of success then? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. What would my definition of success be? Well, you said you, you, you had to change what success meant to you. So I'd love to, I'd love to understand what that means now to you. Yeah, I guess it's much more about seeing the journey and, and the relationship because it's easy to, like a retreat is kind of like this beautiful bubble where you can kind of create this perfect world. And, and that's such a gift because you're able to experience something in that space, which is really life-changing, but it's not the reality of everyday life. And I guess, yeah, it's about not expecting that, that perfection, but 
but finding the joy in the journey and in the relationships because I so love and value all the people that have participated in this program and you you just wish that you could make life easy and simple for everybody and it's it's just not the reality. So I guess I just value still being on a journey together, you know, that if you still have hope and you're still journeying together, then that that is success because, yeah, we're all going to still be growing and, and healing and, you know, as long as we're on this earth. So, I yeah, I guess that's probably the main change for me. And for any of our listeners out there, uh, if they wanted to lend a hand or become involved in Hope for Health in any meaningful way, depending on time, resources, Mm. financial ability, what would you welcome? Yeah, so I guess firstly, like as Jung will constantly direct us to, it is all about relationship and it is so significant to us when people journey with us. So it was kind of a frightening experience the first time I had to like ask people for money when we were crowdfunding our first time. And it's been such a joy to learn to receive that, to realize that people actually want to contribute to important things and it's actually a real joy to give people that opportunity. So we we would not have gotten anywhere without individuals coming alongside us and it is actually individual donors that have kept us going for years now and we currently don't have any government funding and it's, you know, it really counts what people are able to contribute. So I guess the main ways that people can get involved. Obviously, we would love people to come and participate in our Together Retreat in June. It's just such an exciting offering that we, you know, just put out into the world and it's only going to be a small retreat and it feels like such a special journey that we're going to be sharing with people. So, they can go to togetherretreat.com.au to get more information about that. We really, really rely on people helping us to spread the word so that other people can find out about this story and, and, you know, become part of it as well. We, like I said, having people donate or fundraise for us makes such a difference. It's what's making this all possible. And we do have some opportunities for people to volunteer. It's still a space that's growing and evolving. And like at this point, it is usually very specific skills that we're usually calling on to take part in the retreats. But if people follow us on um, Hope for Health on Facebook and Instagram, then they're able to stay up to date with opportunities like that. I love it. I love it. And actually being there and witnessing what you and your amazing group of volunteers and and helpers and actually Mm. sitting with younger people and, and interacting and and learning and creating that relationship is mm-hmm. one of the joys so far of my life and uh definitely i can speak mm-hmm. for my wife as well and even rob our filmmaker yeah we, we were deeply touched by how welcome we were mm. into that world which was very very new for me yeah as an outsider but felt like family within the first yeah. couple of hours yeah and and then that's kind of literally made so isn't it that people adopt you into their system so that you're yeah you're you're in the kidship system you've got a place they they know how to relate to you well it's also healing for anybody that attends mm. without being the patient or without going through it it's it's that reciprocal yeah it's a healing it's it's a healing center it's a healing place it's it's definitely something that um, yeah i'm very excited to help promote and always has mm. been so i want to thank you for all the work that you're doing i want to take a step back as well because what i found really mm. interesting uh the further i go on this journey of of health and understanding the more that meat and fat seems to be basically the, the least inflammatory food for us and the one that seems to be mm-hmm. giving us pretty much nearly everything that we possibly could u- utilize. And I remember mm. some of the dinners that happened while we were there and even sitting with the indigenous after they've, they'd been fishing and uh, had the stingray and the different fish and just putting it on the barbecue and basically nothing went to waste. And you mentioned earlier the, na- the name of fat. And I'd just like you to sum up sort of your perception of what hunting means and how important it is and how respectful we have to be of any food that that we choose to to kill to take a life to nourish us Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's been an absolute privilege to learn from Jungo about how to relate to, you know, creation, I guess, and just, yeah, how deep and intimate that relationship is. And I think people have such a, a misconception of Jungo people, largely because a lot of the names that we've come to use when we're referring to some of their traditional practices. And, you know, I think people think of Jungo as, as being hunter-gatherers, as if they were kind of just roaming around aimlessly and stumbling upon food. And that couldn't have been further from the truth. So, you know, land ownership was something that was very clearly defined and people had clear estates that they that they had rights to be hunting and gathering food on and they tended to go to different areas or different estates as different seasons dictated for where it would be a fruitful place to be. And they had very, very clear practices for looking after those resources in really wise ways. So, you know, they definitely were the ultimate farmers because they were cultivating food in ways that ensured there was going to be an ongoing supply that ensured that next year when they came back to their that place that there would be yams again or ensured that they were taking the right number of turtle eggs so that you know you we're going to be continuing the population and and the same thing about certain areas of you know of the ocean where you wouldn't fish from because you knew that they were breeding areas and the practices are very detailed and sophisticated and just yeah that they kind of floor me that you look at the way they lived in such harmony with their environment you know young people have a gurutu system, a kinship system, which is kind of a, a web of relationship that interconnects every single person in Jungle society. And, and that web extends to all the animals and, and plants. So people know what their relationship is to all of these created things and you know that relationship means you're you're tied to that life you you know you have obligations to it you have reverence and respect for it and and that's certainly that something that comes into the way people care for their resources and and definitely that reverence when food is is hunted it's beautiful observing the way that framework is passed on to children from when they are so small that they're constantly being told what relationship they are to particular things in, in nature and just constantly reminded of their interconnectedness. I love it. Mm. I love it. And just to wrap up, I would love for you to be able to maybe talk about your father-in-law's book and uh, for people to learn more information about the young people. So my father-in-law, Richard Trudgeon, has written an incredible book called Why Warriors Lie Down and Die. So, you know, obviously the title says a lot in itself. It's it's talking about a people group who were strong, mighty warriors and who are lying down and dying from, you know, preventable illnesses. And I guess there's so much misinformation out there and so it's so easy to misjudge and label people and and blame when things don't make sense i guess the thing that was really life changing for me when i was first able to read that book was the ability to realize that the situations that were going on in remote indigenous communities actually really made sense and they made sense in a way without me having to think poorly of anyone and that I was able to think of Jungo as being just as intelligent, just as sophisticated, just as knowledgeable, loving their children just as much as, as any dominant culture person, and that there were actually really understandable reasons why things were falling apart. And when you can understand, you can find a direction forward and I think it's just a really important book to, I guess, get a picture of that that disempowerment that's gone on and the reasons for it, a lot of the, the history that's brought up to this point and, yeah, a lot of tools for being able to understand what's going on and, and how to, to be able to, I guess, bridge that gap between the two cultural worlds. I love it. And it is a wonderful book. Mm. And I, I just want to finish off with one one last thing, and it's um, it was something mm. I witnessed when I was there, and it's the empowerment of dance and what that means, mm. and what what have you learned about it? I think oh, if only we in the dominant culture could 
take a moment to learn something from Jungo about embodying information. You know, Jungo's ceremony is just the most extraordinary thing. You know, Jungo law is this incredible, sophisticated system of, of frameworks about how to live and how to live well. And, and that information is repeated and it's held in song, it's captured in rhythm, and it's embodied in movement. And it's just the most extraordinary tool that has maintained this knowledge and continues to pass it on to the next generations. And it's just incredible to see that and to see it being passed on still and just such an incredible educational tool. And I guess one of the joys that we experience at retreats is that when people start to experience vitality, that's how they naturally express it. So it's just, it's like this life just bounces out of people and they've been spontaneously bursting into song and dance to express that joy. And to me, that's what it's all about. That's what we were created to, to feel is that energy, that strength, that life. And, and it's from that place that we're supposed to be um, doing things in the world. And it's from that place of energy and vitality that we're supposed to be relating to each other, not from a place of, of depletion. And, and lack and it's just such a joy to be able to give people that experience and yeah see the joy being expressed in that way so freely I love it and thank you once again for the amazing experience and I look forward to mm -hmm. when I can come back up again and and form deeper relationships so thank you Karma thank you to your husband thank you to everybody working and, and helping out Hope for Health and hopefully everyone that's listening can jump onto the website and work out a way that feels right for them in, in a way that mm. you or they can contribute mm. meaningfully in however that manifests for each and every one of you. So thank you so much. Thanks so much, Pete. You've been such a, a joy in this journey and such a powerful agent to connect people with this work. It really has been really powerful and we look forward to much more of that. Love you, Karma. You too. <laughs> I'm sure everyone wants to pass on their love too. So <laughs> until we meet again, keep shining brightly. Thanks, Pete. The information, views and opinions expressed in this podcast should not be treated as a substitute for nutritional, medical or other advice by a qualified professional. Guests in this podcast express their own opinions, experiences and conclusions. Nothing in this podcast should be used to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any medical condition. Neither Pete Evans nor any sponsor endorse any views opinions or conclusions expressed or shared in this podcast.